Thank you, Barry. And what a beautiful song. Uh, if you guys would, grab your Bibles. Let's go to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to begin with a parable here in just a minute, but I want you ready to hear this modern-day parable before we jump into Romans 12 and our continued study of life on the altar, the altered life, altered as in living sacrifices, holy and pleasing, our spiritual act of worship, our proper worship, daily worship. I present to you a parable by Pete Rollins entitled, No Conviction. And the parable goes like this. In a world where following Jesus has been decreed to be an illegal activity, you have been accused. You've been accused of being a believer. You've been arrested and now are dragged before the court to stand trial. You have been under clandestine surveillance for some time now. And so the prosecution has been able to build quite a case against you. They begin the trial by offering the judge dozens of photographs. Photographs showing you attending church meetings, even speaking at religious events, and participating in various prayer and other worship services. After this, they present a selection of items that have been confiscated from your home. Religious books, worship music, and other Christian imagery and artifacts. Then they step up the pace by displaying your journal, the poems and pieces of prose and prayers that you have lovingly written concerning your faith for years and years. And finally, in closing, the prosecution offers your Bible to the judge. It's well worn. It's full of scribbles and notes and drawings and underlinings throughout Evidence, if it were needed, that you have read and reread this sacred text many times. Throughout the case, you've been sitting silently in fear and trembling. You know deep in your heart what a large body of evidence that have been amassed against you. So you face the possibility of long imprisonment, and in this world, even execution. At various times throughout the proceedings, you've lost all confidence. You've been on the edge of standing up and even denying Christ. But while this thought has plagued your mind throughout the trial, you have resisted the temptation and remained focused. Once the prosecution has finished presenting their case, the judge proceeds to ask if you have anything to defend. But you remain silent and resolute, terrified that if you open your mouth, even just for a moment, you might deny the charges made against you and even deny Christ. So like Christ, you remain silent before your accusers. In response, you're led outside to wait as the judge is going to ponder your case. Hours pass slowly as you sit under guard in a foyer waiting to be summoned. Eventually, a young man in uniform appears and leads you into a courtroom so that you may hear the verdict and receive word of your punishment. Once seated in the dock, the judge, a harsh and unyielding man, enters the room and stands before you and looks deep in your eyes. And he begins to speak. Of the charges that have been brought forward against this person, I find the accused not guilty. Not guilty? Your heart freezes. Then in a split second, the fear and terror that had moments before threatened to strip you of your resolve 
are swallowed up by confusion and even rage. Despite the surroundings, you stand suddenly before the judge and demand, a demand a reason that he gives an account concerning why you are innocent of the charges in light of all the evidence. What evidence? He replies in shock. What about the poems and the prayers and the prose I wrote, you reply. And the judge says, they simply show that you think yourself as a poet, nothing more. But what about the services and worship times I went to, the times I wept in church, and the evidence of my prayer? The judge replies, evidence that you are a good speaker and probably a good actor, nothing more. It's obvious that you've deluded those around you, and perhaps at times you've even deluded yourself, but this foolishness is not enough for me to convict you in this court of law. Outraged, you shout, this is madness. It would seem that no evidence would convince you that I'm a Christian. Not so, the judge replies, as if informing you of a long-forgotten secret. The court is indifferent toward your Bible reading, your church attendance. This court has no concern for your worship with words and a pen. Continue to develop your theology. Use it to paint pictures of love. We have no interest in such armchair theologians who spend their time creating images of a better world. This court exists only for those who would lay down their brush and then lay down their life in what you call a Christ-like endeavor. So until you learn to live as Christ and live as his followers once lived, until you challenge the system you live in and become a thorn in our side, until you die to yourself and offer your body to the flames, until then, you, my, fr- my friend, you are no enemy of ours. No Conviction by Pete Rollins. This morning, Paul in Romans 12 is going to take us into a rapid-fire approach of commands. Commands that we shouldn't hold and say, oh no, this is hard to do, but it's his definition of a renewed mind, a living sacrifice. Commands that take our whole self, our devotion, and our lives. Let us pray. Over Romans 12, 9 through 21. God, we ask for your help today. Humble us at these words. Teach us with these words. Convict us. So that we can not just know, but we can live. And so that we won't just have knowledge, but we will have a life. That we will be part of the kingdom the movement of Jesus Christ. Create in us clean hearts and new hearts, Lord. And make our hearts soft so we can receive your word and not just hear it, but do it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Romans 12, 9 through 21. Paul says this to this church family, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. 
but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 21, roughly. Depends on how you count it. 21 commands, exhortations, flung out in such quick succession that at first glance you may go, whew, where do I even begin? But I want you to remember this morning what is going on in the church. And I'm going to keep saying this because context is king. We need to remember what the church in Rome is facing. The churches in Rome are comprised of two major parties, two major people groups. Jews on one side, Jews who have become Christians, and Gentiles on the other. And after 11 chapters of profound theology and wonderful, exert, uh, wonderful proclamation of the gospel, Paul makes the move in chapter 12 to get down to what we would call brass tacks or the nitty gritty. How do we live this out? It's the thing he really wants to talk about. He's writing an fancy word, ecclesiology, the study of church. He's writing an ecclesiology in chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 to say this is how the Christian thinks, acts, speaks, and lives. And it's here that Paul is going to describe to us what it looks like to live on the altar what it looks like to this group of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, what they should expect. Now, here's what you need to know. The fact that Paul is going to spend more time than he does in most of his other letters, chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15, four chapters that are longer combined than most of the rest of his letters, dealing with the way the church treats each other, is a huge hint that this church is not doing a good job treating each other. This is a huge hint. This should alert us to the fact that the Christians in Rome are struggling with the very things he's going to speak about. So let me for a moment remind us of what we have. Here's what we have with our giant Jenga blocks that the youth group owns. Here's what you have. You have on one side Jewish Christians who have spent five years away from Rome and have now come back. They came back in A.D. 54. Paul writes this, this letter in about A.D. 57. So in three years, they have really determined which side of the aisle they're on, which side of this wall. So you have the Jewish Christians on one side who are bringing in quite amount of baggage that starts, if you can't read it down here at the bottom, they're the people saying, we have the law. We've got the Torah, we've got Pentateuch, we've got the know-how. You know where this Jesus guy comes from, who's the fulfillment of? He's the fulfillment of the law, and we know it. Also, along with that side, with the law, comes their second brick, tradition. 
Tradition like following kosher laws. Tradition like meeting at certain times, praying at certain times. One of those traditions is their third brick in the wall. And that is the big issue of we don't eat meat sacrificed to idol. Paul is going to spend two chapters, 14 and 50, dealing with this issue, which we'll get to in a few weeks. This is a huge thing, that they are kosher. We're kosher. We don't eat that mess. We're better than you. It's like modern vegans, right? <laughs> right? Right? And then finally, they have this attitude, which he will deal with directly in chapter 14. Those he will call who sit in judgment, he will call them that. He doesn't call them the Jewish Christians. He'll say, those of you who sit in judgment, you think you're first. And he's going to speak directly to that. On the other side, though, what you have is the Gentile Christians. And almost in response to them, as the Jews bring these things that divide, the Gentiles see those divisions and respond and go, whoa, 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 we don't have law. We have freedom. We are here to celebrate freedom in Christ. These Gentile Christians were very pagan at one time, very cosmopolitan. They lived a totally different life. And so the issue is the law versus freedom. Tradition versus the Gentiles going, we're new to this. We haven't been around long enough to start traditions. We just want to celebrate Jesus. Then the Gentiles are going to come and they're going to say to the Jews, Idol meat, idols aren't real. That's why we follow Jesus. We learned that all these idols, Zeus and Hermes and, and Jupiter and Mars, those, those aren't real. And then in response to the we were first, Paul's going to call them in chapter 14 and 15, you have disdain for your brothers because basically you think they're silly. Because of all this. This is the issue going on in Rome. It is what is happening that these two groups are fighting amongst one another. And in one sense, these groups are very different than each other. Backgrounds and tradition and Torah and all these rules. And then on the other side, people saying, I, I didn't grow up with that. I don't have that tradition. But in another sense, and this is critical, these two groups are absolutely the same. Because both groups are fully convinced of their position, being the faithful one. And this is what you need to hold on to. Jews on one side in Rome are saying, the law is how we show our faithfulness. I thought about getting people up here with picket, picket signs. The law is how we show our faithfulness. And Gentiles on the other side saying, no, freedom is how we show our faithfulness to God. This is what's happening in Rome. Before them is this issue of faithfulness. This wall that keeps them apart is one that they are fully convinced of that they are right. And it keeps them these things and how they experience or believe in their faithfulness to Jesus is actually becoming a wall keeping them from reconciling to have good, healthy discussions and to commune. What a relief that we no longer argue about such things. Well, we don't, right? We don't argue about Torah observance 
or meat sacrificed to idols. I doubt anybody's going to get mad at a brother or sister today because they go down to the Canadian and take part in the buffet. Right? But while these may not be our issues, Romans 12, 9 through 21 is so relevant for us today because the issue may not be the issues. The attitude is actually the issue. While we may not build the same walls, the walls are still being built. The language has just changed. If it's not idol meat, then it might be special days or worship styles. If it's not the Torah that we're arguing about, it might be hand raising or the problem of science and evolution and faith or divorce in the church or women's roles or COVID and masks, which split churches in the last couple of years, which is unbelievable to me, and on and on. Before the church, then and now are always issues of importance in which sides are taken. And I'm not diminishing those issues. Now, issues and sides are taken not always rationally, but because we have discerned for any number of reasons that our position is deeply faithful and correct, the easy thing to do is to draw lines and then find it very difficult to see somebody else's position. That is the story of the Roman church. It's the one that's there between the lines when you read it, and it is the story of the modern church now, the one that exists in every church, although we don't like to admit it. So what would Paul's word be? What is Paul's word to this situation? He knows of their situation, and you guys know what his word would be. It's here in Romans 12. And in just a moment, I'm going to read it again out of another version. But before I read it again, I want you to be reminded of how you're supposed to hear Paul. Here's how Paul would write. A letter that was written would take months to write. A small letter like the size of Philemon, which fits on a Bible page, page and a half, would cost about $1,000 to write and to send. Think about how much Romans was. It's 16 chapters in your Bible. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. Paul would spend time with other Christian thinkers, and you see this in the text, working on these letters, writing them, praying over them, revising them. Once they had the letter worked up, they would hire a courier. In Paul's case, his courier was always a fellow Christian, somebody that he could trust with sending the letter. And the courier's job was to take the letter and deliver it, but more than just take it and deliver it, the courier's job was to present it. To say, here's a letter from Paul, let me get this to you. So what the courier would do would sit down with the writer of the letter, and in this case Paul, and get every little thing down. When to raise your voice, when to make an extra point, when to look at this side of the audience and when to look at that, when to lean over here, when to whisper, when to wink, when to whatever it was, when to tell a joke, when to slow down, all those things. That is why letters were written and sent. In this case, we probably know that the one who took the letter and possibly even read the letter to the Roman church is in Romans 16. It's Phoebe. But here's what's happening. You need to imagine before we hear this again that you're sitting in a Roman house church. And you're sitting from just 
a few feet, a few meters away from those Gentiles. Or maybe you're on this side and you're going, those Jews, they're law, it's ridiculous, right? And you're like, I don't care what they say, I'm going to go get my goat from Zeus's temple today. And they're going, you are evil for doing that. You're sitting right there. And on this particular Sunday, a letter arrives. And as I read this again, I want you to imagine you are sitting there hearing this. And you need to think about what section of this does the reader look at you? Does the reader pause and look at your section of the courtyard or the church building? And then I think when we hear this, we can better understand what Paul's getting at. So hang with me. And let's hear these words again. I'm going to read it out of the message this time. You can follow along on the screen, but I would probably actually encourage you just to listen. They didn't read along. They didn't have copies. Paul didn't spend $500,000 to send five more copies or $5 million to spend, send 10, 12, 20 more copies. He had one. And so you're listening, and here's what Paul says to the church in disagreement. Love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled in a flame. Be alert servants of the master, cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Help needy Christians. Be inventive in hospitality. Bless your enemies. No cursing under your breath. Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy. Share tears when they're down. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. Don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. If You've got it in you. Get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. Our scriptures tell us that if you see your enemy hungry, go buy that person lunch. Or if he's thirsty, get him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. So when did the reader look your way? I'm like, the whole time, right? (laughs) Every line. But I'm sure that each of us, if we were really honed in here, we probably all had a moment in those 21 exhortations where Paul's letter strikes right at our heart. But here's what's more interesting. Here's what I find so key, and this is where we're going today. Really, there's only one point of the sermon today, is that none of Paul's commands promise success. None of what Paul says means these walls are going to be taken down. He doesn't offer us, in our terms, a a three-step test of proving your side or four steps to reconciling with your brother who's a theological idiot, you know, like we want to think about. He doesn't do any of that. What Paul does here is he says, you're not getting along, And we go to Paul and we say, yes, we're not getting along. How do we get along? How do I prove that my position is right? 
And Paul goes, be faithful to Jesus. That's how you do it. Love your brother. And that's the whole point. Paul is saying to those divided by the wall on one side or the other, I think what he's saying in my words is what good is it if you are right but not Christ-like? Amen, church? What good does that do? Or another way is what good is it if you win your argument, but along the way of winning your argument, you let go of love. You lose it. That's why he starts with in verse 9, love must be sincere. The Greek word you'll know without ever taking Greek. I'll just give it to you. It's pronounced this way, anti-hypocrites. Love must be anti-hypocritical. Love must not put on a mask is what that means. Love must be genuine. It must be undisguised. It must be real. It must come from our identity in Christ. Love, as the message says, from the center of who you are. It's being an altered, living sacrifice. In other words, Paul is not interested in who's right as much as he's interested in who is being Christ-like. Who is learning the language of Jesus? Who is practicing the rhythms of Jesus? It's what Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 13 that we just sang, right? If I speak in the tongues of angels or of men, but I have not love, what? I am nothing, right? Fill in the blank, church. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Or Jesus, what Jesus himself, our Lord, says in John 13, 35, they will know you're my disciples by how you love each other. See, as we pursue being living sacrifices, holy and pleasing, as we walk this path of faith together, As I said last week, we're going to have some bumps in the road. We're going to have some difficulties. But before we resolve them, before we work them out, what we have to do, Paul's saying, is come together in love. In other words, love is the glue here. The thing that makes it work is your sincere love for each other. The Jews, again, are shouting on one side saying, the law is how we show our faithfulness. And on the others, the Gentiles are going, no, no, no. Freedom is how we show our faithfulness. And I think Paul's letter comes along and stands in the middle and holds both hands and says, love is how you show your faithfulness. It is the greatest command. It is the one filter for the rest of the Bible, which is what he said as we read at the first of our service in Romans 13, 8 through 10. This is the definition So, if love is the way that we show our faithfulness, I believe that when we start to do that, instead of building walls and we start to follow these commands and we start to see what God can do through us, instead of building walls, see if this works, we can actually begin when we follow a life of hospitality and love and we start to care for one another and take the time to say, hey, we're on the same team. 
and I love you because Jesus has loved you, our walls can turn into doors. And our walls, is it going to stay? You guys are getting scared. Yeah, there we go. Don't breathe. This is what he's saying. That instead of building a wall between each other, build a gateway. That you, I'm not going to touch it. But uh, <laughs> that you can walk through. Because when you love each other, guess what you have? You have a gateway to walk through to say, even despite our problems, despite our issues, despite that we read scripture a little bit different than each other, we're going to come to each other and we're going to be patient and we're going to be peaceable and we're going to be prayerful and we're going to sit with each other and we're going to love each other. Isn't that genius? Paul's not interested in who's right. He's interested in who is Christ-like. So I want to finish with this. This is going to be the nerdiest sermon illustration ever. I'm going to nerd out. But one of my favorite movies of all time is 2016's sci-fi movie about aliens coming to Earth called Arrival. Anybody remember that? Great movie. Amy Adams is in it. Uh, it's awesome. Here's a picture from it. Right? Arrival is a story, a movie based on a book that's a sh- book of short stories called The Story of Your Life. And what Arrival is about is this woman named Louise, Amy Adams in it, who is a linguist. And she's this very special linguist who really gets how language works and how language allows us to connect with people from other contexts and cultures and still get communication across, still make things happen in a good way, in a positive way. And in the story, in the movie... She is assigned to go to one of the many places around the earth that the aliens have landed and try to make contact and learn to speak to them. The problem is is that the language that these aliens, they're called heptapods because they have seven legs standing down right there. Heptas, seven, pod, leg, heptapods. The problem is, is that their language is unlike any other human language. It's a language that has no barrier with time and space. So the heptapods perceive reality as if perceiving all a reality. So if they're talking about something now, they're always talking about something much later. So it's really hard. You can see one of their letters in the movie is right there in the middle of the screen, the circle. That's one of their alphabetic letters, I guess, if they have one. Here's what happens in the movie, though. Sorry, spoiler alert, came out in 2016. If you haven't seen it yet, sorry. All right, great movie, though. Throughout the movie, as Louise begins to understand this language, she begins to have these weird glimpses. She'll pause and she'll kind of go into a trance, and she'll start to have memories that she has not yet lived yet. All these memories seem to center around a daughter who she hasn't had yet. As the memories progress and she begins to see these throughout the movie, in the film, she starts to learn that these are actually visions of the future. She's starting to see her future where she has a daughter. The culmination of the film comes that when Louise becomes literate in this heptapod language, she can actually see the future because she understands a language now that is beyond time. And in the movie, 
she learns that the daughter, if she so chooses to have, this daughter will receive and contract an incurable disease and she will die before the daughter is 13. But in the movie, she chooses to have her daughter anyway. She chooses to get married. Jeremy Renner's her husband in the movie. He's also the, an Avenger. Um, and she decides to go ahead and get married, have this child, and have the pain that's coming her way. Why? Because of love. Now, I would say this. I told you that was going to be a nerdy sermon illustration, so you're going, where are you going with this? Time travel and all this stuff? Here's where I'm going. Guys, do you know that the language of Christianity already allows you to time travel? (laughs) Told you it was going to be nerdy. We know where things are headed. As Jamie Winship says, who uh, Cassie and Brad kind of turned me on to his writings and things, he says, if you knew what God already wanted to do in somebody else's life before you ever had a conflict with them, you'd for sure go and have the conflict with them because what God wants for that person is exactly what he wants for you. Does that make sense? In other words, I can already see the future. And that's what allows me to live in love sincerely. Because when I have a problem with a brother or sister, I already know that brother or sister's future. It's with the Lord. So why am I waiting to work things out when it's all going to be worked out later. And if it's not, I may not get the opportunity. Does that make sense? The language of arrival allowed Louise to see the future. The language of Jesus here in Romans 12 allows us to live the future. Because we are people who know where the world is headed. And it's headed towards Jesus Christ. I hope that's your eschatology. That's where the world is headed. It's headed to a full culmination, heaven swallowing earth, and a new creation where Jesus reigns. Where love will rule. And so Romans 12 is going, build gateways. Because you're living out heaven right now. Y'all got that? That's so cool. It's quite a way to... Wrap up a sermon. I'm too nerdy. I'm not even going to try to make it emotional. Let's just wrap it up. All right? Let's live that out. That's your identity. In Christ, that is who you are. May that be the things that we do all the time as we live altered lives. Let's stand together and sing.